This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Full Stack Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to 4000 bucks. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, and today I'm super excited to be talking to Corey Haynes. How's it going, Corey? Excellent. Excellent. How are you doing? Doing great. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know, do you mind just giving uh, kind of a brief introduction of uh, who you are, where you came from, and what you've been up to? Sure. Um, I'm Corey Haynes. I'm a software developer. I'm currently the CTO of a new company called Harkin, which works with uh, starting with public media, but into the greater media space and any um, people who kind of create content for communities of interest, whether they're geographical or topical. And we help uh, reporters and content creators better engage with their audience prior to publicate publication of the story. Because Traditionally, the, the audience only gets to give feedback after the story's been published via like comment sections, and um, I'm fairly vocal about how I feel about comment sections, <laughs> um, but we provide tools and processes for them to engage with the audience from the pitching process to assignment process, and we're putting out new products for the actual reporting process as well. So I'm uh, CTO and co-founder of that. I've been spent the past probably five years, uh, six years doing uh, software development training, um, working with, I was one of the co-founders and kind of the lead instigator slash troublemaker around code retreats and brought that out and, you know, grew it to a more of a global community. And in the last couple of years kind of stepped out of that as the community rose up and pretty much didn't need me anymore as a as sort of the person kind of leading the charge so it's been it's taken on a life of its own which has been really exciting to see um my sort of technology background is i came up through uh .net vb before that then into .net then into the ruby world and i've been doing rails uh as my sort of or sort of framework of choice, my application uh, of choice for a while. I have a, a ongoing sort of love affair with Erlang, but haven't really had the opportunity to build anything big in that. And so that's sort of my... There and I, I stumble along. I spend a lot of time thinking more about sort of the fundamentals of development more so than the technologies themselves and think about uh, maintainability and uh, how teams can you know write code well together like awesome that. awesome so uh, i think the first time i discovered you was uh i was watching a lot of gary bernhardt's destroy all software screencasts and kind of following the stuff he'd been doing and and then i heard about uh you through him because it seems like you know he you guys worked together on a lot of stuff a while back, I guess, and he picked up a lot of interesting uh, techniques and stuff that you used. And then I started looking at like conference videos you'd done and stuff like that. And uh, last year I picked up uh, your book, Understanding the Four Rules of Simple Design that you put out. And that's been uh, 
really, really awesome to go through and apply some of those ideas to some of the stuff that uh, I've been doing in the last couple of years. And I thought it would be really great to chat with you about some of that stuff and uh, ask you a couple of questions and uh, see if there's anything new I can learn from you about it. So, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So the th most interesting thing I think about those four rules, right, is that it's amazing how much they encapsulate, right? It's amazing that Ken Beck was able to take like all of software design and cram it into four things that on their own are just a couple of words each and look really simple, but they're so deep and almost any design idea or a programming strategy I can find anywhere fits into one of those things somewhere and, and helps to achieve one of those goals in some way. So it's, it's really fascinating that he was able uh, to do that. And you mentioned at the beginning of the book, um, you kind of talk about how there's like higher level architecture sort of ideas. And then there's like more low level minute by minute programming decisions that people have to make when they're developing. Right. And that a lot of the book was focused more on that uh, minute by minute, like where should this method go? What should this be named? How can I give this concept a name? Am I duplicating something here sort of thing? And, uh, I asked Kent Beck about that specifically a couple months ago, why he had never really written about higher level architecture ideas. Like you might see like someone like Martin Fowler writing about in like patterns of enterprise application architecture, or a lot of the stuff uncle Bob talks about uh, with like hexagonal architecture and all these ideas and stuff. And Kent had a really interesting uh, response to that. And it was that to him, it's basically all the same. And that design is kind of like fractal. And that if you just start at the small minute by minute decisions and everything that you're working on there, uh, really all you're doing is zooming the microscope in and out. And it's the same sort of things that you're thinking about and the same sort of problems that you're trying to solve at every layer. And I thought that was uh, really interesting. And it'd be, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that and why you chose to focus on the, the low level minute by minute programming decisions in the book. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with Kent. It's probably not surprising. Um, so a lot of the reason that I started focusing on the, the four rules rather than some of the higher principles, like the solid principles and things like that, is, you know, I think I was first introduced to solid principles and design patterns and a lot of those things in the late 90s, early 2000s. And over the last whatever decade, 15 years, one of the most common things that both I experienced when I was first learning and uh, I hear people constantly bringing up again is like, I'm working on this method and I'm worried that I'm violating the single responsibility principle. Or I'm doing this and I, I'm wondering if I should use a visitor pattern here. Or they take these higher level principles and worry about them and worry about whether they're violating some really important thing that's going to make their code awful. And what I found in talking to people and looking at code I've written, code other people have written, that the, the higher level principles tend to be much more descriptive. So back, you know, when, when I'll just take my history, when I learned design patterns, I started putting them into everything. So I would make my UML diagrams and I would, I would say like, here's a visitor, here's, you know, a strategy and here's singleton and all of these things. And I was using them as much of a, more of a prescriptive of like, this is how we're going to build this thing. And it never came out like that. Like as soon as you started coding it, you realized that it wasn't exactly the right fit. And over the years, I realized that 
design patterns are not something that you put into your software. They're something that you recognize in your software. And they're really a communication mechanism to say where you're headed. There's a, an amazing book, which is, I think, so underrated and underknown, called uh, Refactoring to Patterns by Josh Kurevsky. Just like, this, um, it sort of takes that when people started doing uh, much more evolutionary design and, and sort of like, oh, I'm just going to do TDD and refactor, all of the work and all of the studying we had done about design patterns seemed to like, oh, wait, do I have to ignore all that? And it's really that as you're building your software, you're aiming towards these design patterns. And then with the solid principles and some of these more uh, sort of descriptive wordy kind of things like SRP, they're the, I realize they're kind of the same exact thing, is as I'm building my software, if I have a decision to make or if I'm explaining it to somebody, I can use these principles. So why did you choose to do this? Oh, well, that leads me more towards the open-closed principle, and that's a principle that I've seen uh, be beneficial. But I don't code... Like, I don't explicitly say I'm going to build it because it abides by the open-close principle. Sure. And as you take a step back and realize that what I'm actually doing is every minute I'm writing, like, the way I tend to do it is I write a test, write some code, and if there, you know, if it's hard to write the test, I change the design. If it's not hard to write the test, then I just kind of keep going. And then I'm constantly looking at refactoring and having refactoring be the driving principle. And the four rules, especially the middle two, the naming and duplication, mm -hmm. those are the sort of really that second-by-second second thinking about refactoring at every little piece of the way. And if I have a two-line method, the, the idea of, oh, well, I want to see if this abides by Liskov. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. Those things don't worry. So... That idea of sort of moving up the design chain, down the design chain, like most of the time we aren't at the, the macro level. Most of the time we are spending it on that little tiny, like this line and that line and that line. And then periodically you come up from air, for air and see like, aha, somehow I stumbled my way onto something that abides by these other principles. And then they become, they became a, become a way to have a conversation with somebody else and to explain where you're headed. Um, and the, the book itself came out of the years of doing code retreats and spending time, because at code retreat we uh, work in 45 minute chunks and we delete the code at the end, there's no time to think about these larger scale principles. And so the only thing that really seemed relevant were these small, these four rules. And it's like, you're going to be working really hard for 45 minutes, and all I want you to think about is names and duplication. And then see where you end up, and people get to these amazing, great things. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I mean, you talk a bit about um, the idea of good code in the introduction of the book, and I think... Um for me, 
myself, as well as, you know, a lot of other people I've talked to and, and probably lots of other people out there, it can be kind of paralyzing when you're first starting to work on something, thinking about how am I going to make this good and trying to plan or trying to figure out what it's going to have to to look like to to be good. And, and you talk about this idea of instead of thinking about, you know, writing good code, thinking about writing better code. And uh, I think the I, the thing about that that seems powerful to me is that in order to be able to write better code, you have to have some code to make better right so the idea of refactoring being like the thing that drives you towards these good designs and and you know good design being something that works for your system at this exact minute in time and maybe won't be the right design five minutes from now when you go to implement the next thing has been a a really you know good way to think about it for me i think um something else that i've has made it easier for me is um thinking about like not feeling guilty about having to change code, like accepting the fact that as I'm building things, I have to keep changing things and making things adapt to, to what I'm working on. So I don't know. Is that something that you think about a lot? Like instead of thinking, you know, I have to get this right. Like there's no such thing as right. It's kind of just like this is right or this works well and I'm happy with it right now. But if I have to change it in five minutes, I shouldn't feel bad about it at all. That's part of just the process you know what i mean yeah yeah and there's the thing i like to say that the only thing we know about software is that it's going to change and if you've ever i mean even your first project you ever do as a beginner you're going to see it changes as you learn more things and getting used to that idea that your code doesn't like it's not right there, there are more situations where the code you just wrote is the wrong code than there are right situations. And if you're, what you're hoping is that the situation you're in right now is the one where the code is the right one for. Sure. But a week from now, two weeks from now, you know, it's not going to be. Like, I just yesterday rewrote a large part of the system I'm working on. Well, a large part of a subsection of the system sure. I'm working on. Um, partially because I had put a really nasty security flaw in there, but also because because it was just like not the situation that I had assumed that I was going to be in is not the situation I was in. And I found out a few days later. I mean, it was just a few days. And then um, I was like, okay, this is a much better way to do it. Um, so it, it is that building for change and you had brought up that idea of good code versus better code. And I, I like to look at better code as the, one, as the code that is going to be easier to change. You know, that's the only measure of whether the code is right or not, is how easy it's going to be changed. So I think some people kind of get the wrong idea about what easy to change means sometimes. And I think sometimes it can lead people down this path of trying to pre-plan for all the different types of change that might happen and trying to guess at what those changes might be so they can build in places where they can swap something out for something else when maybe the thing that they're swapping out here you know for this other thing isn't even like the right abstraction so being able to swap it out and having like some extra code lying around to do that maybe isn't uh the right approach is that something that you see people doing do you have like a anything that you say to people like that to help them understand what you really mean when you're talking about designing code that's going to be easy to change? Or what do you mean when you're talking about designing code that's going to be easy to change? It's the big difference between building a system that's easy to change and code that's easy to change. 
all of the extensibility points that we put in, all of the configuration files, things like that, that's about making your system easy to change. Um, but what I'm talking about is the code itself, like the lines, the, the text that you're writing, you want to be able to change that. And none of that has to do with extensibility points or configuration or things like that. It's not behavior, it's actually the code. And putting structures in place, making, you know, like uh, isolating knowledge, you know, eliminating duplication, that makes it so that you can change your code easily. You don't have to go to several places if you need to change a constant. Yeah. So re both of those are important, but the more important thing is the low level, like the code itself. And the configurability and the extensibility of the system itself comes from that. Um, not, you know, sometimes it's easier to just, especially at the beginning of a piece of software, to just write the raw code, put in your cases, you know, make sure it's small, you know, make sure that you abide by small and names well and things like that. But don't worry about making it externally configurable or anything like that. If you find that you have to have a different behavior, go in and code it and deploy it. Build your, you know, have your deployment stack such that it's easy to deploy and easy to get these things out here. And you have a good safety net so that as you make changes, you can make sure you're not breaking older things. And if you can do that, then oftentimes it's better to just write the code, just get the code out there. Over time, you'll start to notice where the configurability and the extensibility is. So here's a, here's a concrete example is the, uh, one of the primary tools that we build at Harkin is a way for newsrooms to gather questions from their audience. And so we have a standalone site that they can use that has a little box that people can type questions in and an overlay comes up with a bunch of questions. Select your category, pick a picture, things like that. And we also have these small embeddable modules that they can just drop on their iframes, that they can drop onto their website. Both of these are bringing questions in to the system, but they have different uh, data needs. So the one collects a bunch of data, the, the module collects the name and the email address and the zip code, I think. And okay. so they're both bringing the same thing in, but what I did was I actually built two different controllers to accept the question. So I have a, you know, a questions controller that has a create on it, and then I have an embeddable modules questions controller that has a create on it. And they're almost exactly the same thing. Because, of course, controller actions are very small and they're just taking the data and sending it down to the model in a, you know, in the sort of modern web framework structure styles. Um, and so I have these two things that are doing pretty much the same thing. And I wrote them separate. Now, I have a couple other places where the other questions are going to be coming in because we want to be able to, you know, what happens if somebody says they'd love to send a question via uh, text? So... These, like, I could go through and do this big configuration, like this big, huge subsystem that allows questions from everywhere and all yeah. of that. And I will, but I'm going to extract that out of all of this stuff. And yeah, so, and that's, yeah. yeah. So you end up kind of like seeing, you give yourself a chance to 
to notice what changes you need to be making, right? Instead of trying to predict what the changes are. And when you need to make some change, uh, I can't remember who said it, but it was, uh, there's a quote, right? It's like, uh, make the change easy and then make the easy change, right? That's kind of like your refactoring strategy for like bringing in new things into the system. So if you see something that some requirement comes in or something that you need to add, figure out how you can modify what's there already to make it easy to add more stuff like that in the future and then add it in. And now you're kind of letting your system evolve for the actual needs that are actually actually coming in. And I think that's a really useful way to approach it, but it is kind of intimidating still to feel like sometimes maybe you are, you know, not leaving your code in a, in a good place or something, or, or I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but I, I think there's maybe like a fear of, well, because I don't know what the change is, I can just leave this code messy and I don't feel about good about leaving it messy, but maybe, maybe there's a difference between leaving your code messy and, you know, building things that the requirements of your software haven't driven you to build. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, that's, it is that difference of level. Like the requirements are sort of the behavior of your system and you don't want to build more than what you need to have. But don't leave your code messy. Like the, the in, Make it so that it's easy to find out where the code is. Make sure that it's easy to determine if the code works. Um, but like, even though I have this sort of, it's, it's, it is kind of a duplication. Like it's this duplication of behavior of accepting questions. The code itself is very tight. Like it's, you can look at it. It's, I think... Each controller action is probably four lines long. Like most of the behavior has been extracted into the model. Um, And so I would be very, very comfortable and proud to show people the code. Now, if we look at the whole system design, somebody could very easily say, you know, if you took these out and extracted it into an adapter that adapts from the parameters that are coming in, into a sort of generic question I thing. You could move these into the same controller. And I'm going to do that eventually. I've done it before. It's, it's not that hard. But I don't need to right now. Like, it's not... That's, there's nothing that says that's going to give me a huge value. Now, when... To the, what, the point you made, which is, I believe it's in the original refactoring book, that idea that you should refactor when you need to. And this is a confusion that a lot of uh, people get into, and I think is a very subtle one, is there's this always keep your code clean with the four rules, and then there's this don't refactor until you know that it's going to be hard to make the change. So, like, with this adapter idea, with these questions, I'm not going to fully implement this idea of having an adapter that knows how to convert different uh, incoming streams of data into the same question model mm-hmm. until I have my third uh, way that questions are coming in. Mm-hmm. When I have that, then I'm going to go through and I'm going to make this larger scale design choice and this design refactoring. Um, and then it will make the, we'll just say it's SMS, who knows what it's going to be, but we'll just say it's SMS. At that point, the SMS is just going to be like, oh, this is super easy. I'll sign up with Twilio, they'll post my SMS to me, or any response that comes in on SMS, it comes in as post parameters, I can write an SMS adapter, it'll convert it in. 
And so that will become a very trivial, straightforward, not trivial, but straightforward uh, um, activity in, in addition to the system once I make that refactoring. But on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, I'm constantly refactoring the code under my fingers and keeping that clean. And being able to jump between those levels is sort of that, is sort of the, the way to resolve this dissonance between when to do your refactoring. That makes total sense. Do you find uh, that, th that number three is kind of an important number or trigger in uh, how you think about your design? Like you're saying right now, you have two ways that things come into the system and maybe it's not so bad to just handle those two cases. And if, as long as there's never gonna be any more cases, then that's the simplest solution to your problem, right? But as soon as that third one comes in, now it's gone from, it's almost like three isn't its own number anymore. It's like three represents many and there could be more. Um, I think so. Like I know a lot of people who talk about, uh, you know, the rule of three, as soon as you see something three times, that's when you refactor it and, and isolate it. I tend to have at a small scale level, a uh, rule of two. Like if I see if I see the knowledge appearing in two places, then I'll refactor it. And some people do three. That's okay. I think probably for me at the higher level, at the system level and the design level, um, I do have that three because I I kind of just want to get it working, keep the code clean, keep it so that it's going to be easy to make the changes. Because when I do do this refactoring, I'm going to have to make changes at the view level um, to be posting it back in. I'm going to have to make the changes at my route level. So I want to make sure that those are, it's going to be easy to make this change in the future. So I just make sure that the code is um, fairly concise and easy and not spread around. Um, so I think at the low level, I have a rule of two. And then at the high level, probably a rule of three. I, I'm kind of ad hoc with a lot of the rule, like having these things. So it's sort of like, it, I wouldn't be surprised if one Saturday evening, I'm just like, ah, I'm just going to build this adapter thing sure. and put it in there. But I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't, if I got to the, yeah. you know, waited until then. Um, but once you start getting like three or four different ways to do the same, you know, not the same, but very, very similar behavior, then it's worth refactoring because it's not that it's like one, two, and many. It's once you hit three, you've got a pattern going on. Like, sure. once I do SMS, like, what's stopping me from doing Twitter? And what's stopping me from doing, um, you know, Facebook, other than the Facebook graph API, which is awful. But, um, you know, <laughs> other than the Facebook API or things like that, or a mobile device or something like that. So it's usually once you've hit that third one, you know that you're going to be doing a fourth one. So it's worth taking that little extra time. Awesome. So maybe it'd be uh, good to run over these four rules. I feel like we kind of blew past them a little bit. Yeah. Started just talking about the details. But uh, the first one is that um, code should pass its tests, right? So to me, I, I almost wonder, is this Kent's way of just kind of sneaking in, like you should be testing your code. And now these next three are the ones that are the most interesting. Uh, so I'd be interested to find out from you uh, if, if you think there's a deeper meaning to that or if there's more to it than just kind of like uh fyi no matter what you're doing here this, this code should have tests and unless it has tests these other three rules don't matter so do those first you know what i mean oh the way i introduce it is notice that it doesn't say automated tests mm -hmm. 
Um, if you don't, if you can't verify that your system works, then it doesn't matter how great the code is and how great sure. the design is because you're not going to be able to change it comfortably. And if you go down the level of, of the feedback that the tests give you, did my change break anything? You want to, in order to change something quickly and easily, you want to be able to get that feedback as quickly as possible. And if you have just auto, or if you just have manual tests, then, you know, I've been places where you throw the system over the wall and then two weeks later you start getting test, you know, uh, QA reports and test yeah. reports and test issues. And that's not really conducive to making changes rapidly. So the more, the, the more tests you have that can, you can run and get feedback on within seconds, then the faster and more comfortably you're going to be able to make changes. And all of this is about being easy to change. Yeah. So you want your tests to pass. You want them to be as fast as possible. One of the things that, like I tend to do Rails, and one of the like big kind of crazy annoyances in Rails is that the sort of out-of-the-box testing, in testing uh, experience is very slow. Sure. Um, and slow for me. Like, I know that there are a lot of people, some people who are uh, well, well sort of associated with Rails, who find it to be perfectly okay, that the timing and it doesn't bother them. It kind of bothers me that I have to wait a few seconds to load up. If Especially I, if you're running your tests every one or two lines of code that you're writing. Yeah, right? yeah, and so I've done some work to try to make the majority, a lot of my tests, very much, much faster. You know, not loading up Rails, not having to do this and that, and so you want them to be very fast because so that you can't make the change, and that's where I think, and that's how I interpret that test pass. That's interesting because uh, I think um, you know there's been a lot of emphasis about test speed and stuff like that. And if you don't think about it too much, sometimes it sounds like, um, you know, you want your test to be fast for the sake of the test being fast or some sort of vanity metric or something. Right. But when you put it in terms of what you're talking about here, where it's kind of like, you know, that first rule that it's the code passes its tests really means, you know, the most important thing your code can do is work the way that it's supposed to work. Right. If your code doesn't do what it's supposed to do, then none of this other stuff matters. And the faster you can, guarantee that your code works, the faster you can get down to working on the design of your code and not just worrying about spending all your time making sure things still work the way they work. And if you can run your tests every time you make any change and know instantly whether something has broken, then uh, you know, you're in the best position that you can possibly be in. Yeah, and, and doing a, a, a either a test first or a TDD sort of coding style and uh, workflow, you want to be able to write a very small piece of a test, run it. Like, I want to see my test fail before I have the method even, like, written, like the name of the method written. And I want it to say undefined method. Yeah. And then write the method. And then I want to be in this uh, bouncing back and forth rapid conversation between the test that I'm writing, which is sort of the first client of the method, yep. and the method itself as you're building it up. Because... I like to do this sort of like dump code onto the screen and then clean it up. And so I want to get it to the point where it's green and it's doing everything that it needs to be doing. So I've got four or five tests 
or three tests or whatever it is. And then I can then run them very rapidly while I'm cleaning it, moving things into guard clauses and um, whatever, all of the different things that you can do uh, to clean up the code. And so it's important to me and my yeah. style of coding. I know that some people who are very effective, very, you know, you can't say they're not good developers who take much larger steps and would write a test that um, gets a much larger chunk of the behavior uh, tested. And then they'll go and sort of build it up. And for that, perhaps you don't need your test to be like maybe four seconds is good enough for that yeah. because you're running it, you know, every half a minute or every minute or every couple minutes. And it's like, you know what, that's, that's fine. I, I have a, I put a post on my uh, blog that actually had a little video of what a four second test run looks like versus a, I think it was like a, a sub second or a two second sure. or something. And, you know, we talk about these numbers of four seconds versus two seconds versus 10 seconds, you know, and, and for a lot of people, a four second run of your, say your model test is like heaven. Like if only it was that to do. Um, and so it feels like nitpicking around it. But if you really watch a video, a video of the difference between four seconds and two seconds, and you think that this is what you run every 10 seconds, like it, it, yeah. it can be dramatic if that's your style of coding. Especially when like during those four seconds, all you're really, all you're doing is looking at the screen, just counting one Mississippi, two Mississippi. It's not like you can be doing anything else productive during that time, right? It's literally just, you know, it's that sleep call in your workflow. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost enough time to bring up Twitter, but not quite enough. And so you feel a little, I feel a little bit bad if it's like, oh man, it finished before I came back to it. Um, <laughs> so Totally. So uh, the next uh, rule is that code reveals intent. And this is kind of a broad one that I think covers a lot of things. So it'd be, I'd love to get uh, your impression of what this means. I mean, it's at, at the heart, it's really good names. Like names of methods, names of namespaces, names of variables, um, it should read well. Like, you shouldn't look at, you know, one of the sort of uh, extreme examples I use is when you have a method that's like process transaction and you look in it and it doesn't process anything and there's no sense of a transaction. And usually what happens is you start off with your method and then the method sort of diverges in its goal and you don't go back and you change the name. So you always want to come back and look and say, is this really representative of what this thing, what this variable is, or what this method is supposed to be doing? Um, and thinking about class names, like I have a lot of classes that are they encapsulate a process. They're not encaps they're not representing an entity. They're representing a process. And so I'll. For example, I enjoy using verb phrases for classes. Yeah, this was something I was actually going to ask you about. Yeah, I like it a lot because I do build classes that are that do represent a, tran a, a not a transaction necessarily, but a process. And so I'll put the verb phrase, and like this thing translates between two different formats, and I'll yeah. put translates between these formats or something. And then the instances are the the sort of entities that are doing it with the with whatever initialization parameters they need. It's not always like that, but um, 
you know, trying to make the name very clear about what it does. If you see a, like when I first started doing that back in probably about 2005, 2006, I was working on a system that was a front end to a bunch of different systems in the back end for doing software distribution. And I had a, I was doing C Sharp at the time and everybody was, you know, there's this, this discussion between the Java people and the C Sharp people whether or not interfaces should be marked or whether the concrete implementation class should be marked. Sure. And so it was either I for the interface or like impl at the end of the sure. implementation class. <laughs> and in the, in the .NET style, it was marking the, the interface. I so we had I. Yeah. Um, and so I started playing around with the idea of what if I used that as the first part of my sentence and said okay, this interface is going to talk about what it does. And so, like, one of my uh, interfaces was I translate to distribution system. Okay. And the implementations would be translates to SMS, translates to radio, translates to security, things like that. And it worked really well, and it made the system read pretty... Like, you knew what this thing did. Like, if you had something of that type, there was no question of its goal and its purpose in life. Yeah. And over time, I just, that just became, uh, you know, I found that it made the code read better. And it made it, you know, sort of come to that revealing intent. Um, and so it's, it's very subtle. All of these rules are subtle, but if you just start off with, Always go back and make sure your names are good and spend time on the names. Like, it's okay to spend time changing your method name. Yeah. Seeing what works. Do you ever use, um, you know, if something, if you're having a hard time coming up with a good name for something, what does that tell you usually? Is it just because naming things is hard or does that sometimes make you reconsider uh, part of your design? Um, absolutely. On both counts. Like, naming is hard. Um, Sometimes it's, if I find that I'm having a hard time naming it, because I work in primarily OO languages, mm -hmm. the names are part of the class signature. And they're part of the flow. So if I'm writing a test and I have this variable and I'm doing a dot and calling a method on it and it just looks wrong, and it's like, oh, well, what could this method be named? Sometimes it's in the wrong class. Yeah. Sometimes it's... Uh, doing too much is a common one. Like, you know, you know, there's the, the easy way of saying, like, if you have an and, then there's probably a problem. But, but there's, you know, more subtle ones that it's just doing too much. And maybe, maybe you need it to actually be a coordinator method that's coordinating the calls to other methods that are doing the individual parts. And then you can have this larger scale term for it. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Uh, another thing that's kind of related to this that I noticed uh, in the book is, you know, you talk about, um, especially when you're writing your tests first, uh, you have this example, right? Because a lot of the book is, well, the book primarily is based around Conway's Game of Life, right? And you have um, this example where you're writing a test that you want to uh, make sure that a new world is empty. And um, the first example you give is that, you know, assert uh world dot cell count equals zero or something right and that's how you assert that the world has no no cells inside of it and then you 
change that uh, throughout the course of the section of the book until you end up with checking that the world is empty and you have a method called, you know, dot empty. A lot of people would say like, you shouldn't add methods to your classes that only exists to like make assertions about them that you haven't like actually found a concrete use for that in your actual code. What is your response to that? Then don't write the test. Like if you are writing a test and so in that specific case, I wrote a test that the world starts out empty. Why? Like who cares? Like it's (laughs) not even that you add a method to the class to satisfy the test. You're adding a test that nobody, like, what behavior of your requirements or what behavior of your system demands you to have an empty world to start out with? Um, You may end up building a system where you always initialize it. Like, if your initialization uh, routine always takes this, in Conway's, for example, the cells that are alive, then it doesn't matter if the world starts out empty. Because it can't start out. You decide how it starts out, right? Like you tell it how to start out every time. Yeah, and yeah, so it really is. And this is also one of those subtle things with the tests. And that section ta- you know, kind of goes into this idea of the test name influencing the code. And it really is that. Like if you're going to say that the world starts out empty, you want to be able to say that the world is empty. You don't want to say that it has zero cells. Otherwise, you should make your test name be the world starts off with no cells in it. Then there is that higher level of just like, who needs that? Why is that there? Um, Jay Fields talks a lot about the uh, not needing the test names. Like the test names aren't that useful, especially as they're strings, oftentimes. And just getting rid of them altogether. And there are cases for me that, that's, that I can do that. But the actual test description is my way of thinking through the behavior. And then the test code is reflective of that. So the be- for some reason, my world has to start out empty. And so I want to make sure that I can say the world is empty. And then that goes down and, and um, reflects that. Because I, I try to spend a lot of time really just thinking about how would I describe this behavior? which is sort of where that describe keyword comes into play. Totally. That makes total sense. Uh, okay. So moving on to the next one, which is, this might be the most interesting one of all is uh, that the code should have no duplication and what does duplication mean and stuff like that. So uh, what is, what does this rule mean to you? I mean, it, it really is that idea of duplication of knowledge, mm-hmm. not duplication of structure and code. Um, I've seen horrible, horrible things. And David Chalimsky did a great talk at, oh, several years ago on like duplication gone wrong or eliminating duplication gone wrong where he went in one point, he takes a string or like two strings and eliminates the duplication between the strings and ends up with a <laughs> bunch of constants. And it's this, it's this great thing. Take, you know, it's this great thought that goes through all of our minds taken to the extreme. Um, it's really about knowledge, and it's it's that dry principle. And the dry principle, if you go back to the pragmatic programmers, it was every piece of knowledge should have one and only one representation. Yeah. And this comes down to it's not that you want to, if I want to change this piece of code, I only want to change that code in one place. It's if I want to change some fundamental piece of knowledge, some fundamental aspect of my system. 
I want to be able to do it in one place. So if the um, so in the system I'm working on now, questions have statuses. So the statuses are uh, new, investigating, answered, and I think deleted or something like that. Sure. That, that t- sounds like I don't know the system I'm working on, actually. Because <laughs> I keep being like, I don't know, it's some, some crazy statuses. Um, they're actually hidden and removed. But those are, you know, this is a very simple case where those are constants. You know, they're constants, and everywhere in the system references those constants. And the act of whether or not somebody is a administrator, that knowledge is held in one place. And there's methods wrapping around that. So there, there is an admin, you know, method. But there's also things like can do this. And those are sort of isolated down. Um, a, a good, one of the examples that I like to use is in an older app that I built called Mercury App. We had started off with the idea of it being a paid system. And you had tiers, and depending on your subscription level, you got different numbers of groups you could create and things like that. And the information about your what you could do at your tier was all in one place, like one class. And so when you logged in, we asked what was the class that represented your subscription level. And everywhere throughout the system, asked that class for the information. Can I create another one of these? Can I uh, add, a, add another person to my group? Things like that. And so when, when we decided that this wasn't going to be a, a viable business for various reasons, but we still wanted to keep Mercury App running, we took out all of the money off of the UI. And then the one place, there was one method that you called to say, give me the user's authentication level or authorization level, I changed that to always return sort of the super user level. And the whole system became free. And it was because the knowledge about, it wasn't just the knowledge of what you can do, but the knowledge of how to get that class was isolated in this one spot. And so Duplication is really about that knowledge. Don't worry about whether you've written two for loops that look the same. Understand, are they rep- do, do those two for loops represent the same knowledge in your system and the same concept in your system? And if they do, then extract them into a method that you call. But um, structural duplication is less, for me, less of an a important type of duplication. I still eliminate it, but it's secondary to that that knowledge. Yeah. You give a really good example in the book about, you know, the concept of uh, where a cell exists in the world. And the first kind of naive implementation is just X and Y coordinates, right? And there's a bunch of places in the system where you're going to create a new cell and you put it at this, these coordinates, X and Y. And, and now all of a sudden you have, you know, a handful of methods that take the parameters X and Y. And now what if all of a sudden you want to place these cells in a three-dimensional space? Now you have to update that in every single place. And I think that's the sort of duplication that goes unnoticed easily if you're not really thinking about it. Uh, the other thing that I think is interesting is I find that really focusing on duplication from this point of view can lead you to putting behaviors into places that you might not have expected them to land in or in ways that go against how some people think about uh, object-oriented programs. So a concrete example, I find there's this prevalent idea that uh, I 
that was baked into even my head for a long time that the methods on an object are supposed to be things that that object can do or something, right? And there's this constant, uh, you know, if you have a pay method on an invoice, for example, the argument against that is always like, well, an invoice shouldn't be able to pay itself, right? That doesn't make any sense. And I'm finding more and more lately that that line of thinking is a barrier in my designs that's preventing me from building things that are actually going to be the easiest to maintain and the easiest to change. So the example that I have is I was working on a system where people needed to be able to register for events. And when you were registering for an event and like paying your registration fee, you might be able to add a coupon code. And it was really difficult to come up with a good design that allowed you to handle different types of coupons because some coupons just give you like a fixed amount off the registration fee. Some are percentage based. Some maybe just let you delay the time in which you need to pay the registration. Like maybe this coupon says you can pay at the door when everyone else has to pay in advance or something like that. And uh, the design I finally landed on that made it really, really easy to build was that a coupon had the ability to apply itself to an event, right? So now you have all these different types of coupons that contain all the knowledge about what applying this coupon actually does to an event. Uh, but if I had like stuck myself in this line of thinking where, you know, a coupon shouldn't be able to apply itself, it's just a piece of paper, it can't do anything, then uh, I never would have allowed myself to land on that design. Is this something that you've thought about a lot? Like what, what a, how do you determine like what methods should go where? Do you think about like this idea that things shouldn't be able to do things to themselves or do you have like a different way of thinking about that that kind of frees you up from some of these like limitations that become barriers in your design? Yeah, and there's two things here. One is this, like I push very, very hard against this idea that OO is about modeling the real world. And so saying that, okay, I have a coupon, so I have a coupon class, and it's this thing. But really, if you think about it, what a coupon, in your case, a coupon is a, uh, it's kind of a decorator on an event. Mm -hmm. So if you said, hey, coupon, uh, here's the event, it could return you a decorated event. That when you then start asking, probably that's might be sort of like how your system ended up working. Um, and so instead, I think of objects as sort of representing the, the interactions between the things. And I start thinking about those. And look at my objects, the methods on the objects, as, as ways to alter the thing. And like pay on an event, that's an act on event. Mm -hmm. And I think that's perfectly okay. Now, yeah. you may end up extracting out like a payment object yep. eventually. Um, but at the very beginning, it's like, it's not that the thing is doing it to itself. It's that you're sending a message yeah. to it. I am paying this thing. And that's the, the public facing interface and the API of your object is the things you want to do to it, not the thing that it's doing to itself. Like it would almost be interesting if, you, if there was a language where the method came before the object or something. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about this idea of it's what you're doing is you're sending a message to it. And, and if you look at that message as an interaction between the caller and the callee, then 
it's not so much that pay is part of the event object. It's just an interaction that somebody can have with the event object. Yeah. Do you think this is one of the reasons that like uh, the user object in a system becomes a god class a lot of the time? Because people think, well, a user can do things because it's like a living thing that can actually affect things. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's like, well, if this is part of what the user's responsibility is. And it's like, well, that's... No, it's really the objects are the thing. You want to do stuff to them. And there may be, like, I actually write a lot of classes that are purely process. And so I might have a, um, a class that's like, applies coupon to an event. If there's complex stuff around it. Yeah, like if it would turn the coupon into a 300-line class or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And that then does the sort of wrapping and the, de- the decorating of the event um, self. Although, in, in, in that case, like having a coupon that you just give it an event and then it returns you the decorated event is a, is a great, I think that's oftentimes a great design. But having, so instead of taking and putting a bunch of methods on a user class because these are the things that the user can do, build a set of service classes that enact those actions. And they are, like, I, I have another sort of general rule, which is that external external objects can't use the new method. Yeah, this you made this point in the book, and I thought it was really interesting. So it's like, I would say, um, if I have a coupon, I would always have the, the initializer method be something like for event, and then pass it the event, and then make the initializer, you know... I, if, depending on your system, make it private or not, or protector or whatever. Like, I'm not a, as big of a fan of the of using private and stuff like that. But I would just have for event. And that means that it's always got that event. And it's always sort of representative of it. And it probably would be nice if it was, iso- if it was polymorphic with event. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Things like that. And really look at it as a, as a decorator for it. Um, but giving yourself the opportunity and the, the, uh, the freedom and, and the sort of saying it's okay to have classes that are purely about coordinating an activity yep. allows you to pull those out of, you know, it, it makes it easier to figure out where to put a method because you can just be like, well, I'm just going to make a class and have a, like, don't have a process method. Like, think about what this thing is mm-hmm. and... Like, a lot of the times what they're doing is some sort of data transformation. So you might have the constructor is, like, for something, and then you have, like, it's two parameters or two the other type, things like that. Um, And so giving yourself the freedom to do this and the, you know, nobody's going to look at you and go, wow, you did a really bad thing there because... Oh, the only people who really say that are people you shouldn't really listen to. I think. <laughs> it's just kind of... That's really good advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how do you think this applies to something like Active Record, for example? Like there's, you know, that's a pretty controversial, I think, pattern in general where a lot of people think, uh, you know, it's it's not right that an object can save itself, right? You know, the, the same sort of uh, language that people use there. Do you have any opinions about how this applies specifically in that case? Um, I mean, there's active record, the pattern, and then there's active record, the implementation, and like sure. Rails and all of that. And those are two different things. But 
if you think about it as like I'm, tell I'm telling the object save, it's not really that it's doing it to itself. It's I'm telling, it knows what it means to save. Ideally, it, you do separate them. You have something that is more of the entity, and then you have something that knows how to save into the database. But for very simple situations, and for, I mean, really, if, you, if what you're working on are a fairly entity-oriented system, the idea that the thing knows how to save itself is really, really convenient. Like it's really handy. Like I, I like Active Record. I use it all the time, and it's my, you know, it's sort of my go-to sort of repository or the, the yeah. thing I use for that. The thing is internally. Like one of the great things about the implementation in Rails is that the adapters are external. The, you know, as they've gone into like Rails 3, extracted a lot of things like Active Model, and so that allowed it, it internally uh, pulled the pieces apart so that you can replace them but still provided this uh, unified API. It's almost a facade to all of the internal pieces. I, I mean, imagine the, you know, what a standard kind of MVC web framework would be like if you had to, you know, build up a repository and then it developed, it returned this thing and then you had to send it back and you're creating, I mean, Rails creates enough objects as it is, much less having to do all of this stuff. And there's a, a, a really big differentiation between the complexity of the underlying, underlying system and the framework itself and yeah. the API that it presents to you and um, Rails and a lot of the ones that took the lead from Rails or took not the lead from Rails but took Rails as their uh, kind of inspiration. inspiration focused very heavily on simplified APIs um, so that you could ramp up. There are a lot of designs where Rails is not the one for and are sure. awful. Like on my system, I'm, I like to say that I consciously try to map my features to Basecamp and think of my app as a, a niche version of Basecamp because if I can do that, then sort of Rails is going to be perfect. Like yeah, it's it's going to give you superpowers, basically, yeah, right? Like, yeah, and it does. And I've written systems, like, I've, uh, I don't go to the level of, like, the hexagonal architectures or some of those other ones, but I've, I write systems where the majority of my code is outside of the Rails framework itself, and uh, Rails depends on my code rather than the other way around. But... On this current system that I'm working on, I was like, it's a simple kind of data management tool. Like with yeah. workflows in it, there's, there's no sense in holding on to some sort of purity of design and like this, this holy grail of like, oh, well, I have to have all these service objects from the start and all of that. I have a couple sprinkled around, but... It's a data management tool, which is kind of what Basecamp is. And it's like, why not just fall into that and rely on the fact that there's a ton of people who are thinking very heavily about the experience of using that API? And that's where I think Active Record, uh, in this case, shines. And the I do mention this in the book that arguments about like I can 
rail on Active Record for a long time, and I have in the past. Um, but I like to do that over coffee or over a beer or something, not when there's an actual system that you're trying to develop in front of you. Sure. Maybe this is a good segue into the uh, the final rules. The final one is like, uh, you know, a simple system has the fewest elements possible. And it sounds like that kind of ties into what you're talking about there, where when you're introducing things like these service objects and stuff, they kind of have to earn their right to exist sort of thing, right? And and, may, and be simpler than the alternative. So uh, so what does this idea of the fewest elements mean to you? Um, I So Joe Rainsberger, who I'm going to send you some links to his stuff, uh, writes a lot about this and the four rules and things like that and writes about software design in general. And one of the things that he's he's brought up is that if you abide by the first three, then the fourth sort of comes into play because you've eliminated duplication and stuff like that. One of the things I tend to think about with this is are the interactions just the ones that need to be there? Do I have too many interactions between objects? And what you said is exactly when you're writing the code and figuring out, do I want a service object or do I want another object, things like that, um, thinking about they have to earn their way in. I tend to write more objects and more classes and let them collapse because I found it's easier to collapse things than it is to pull them apart. And so the, the, the fourth rule comes back in and says, do I have two things that are effectively the same? Um, can I collapse them into one? And oftentimes you can. And then the ways that the things are interacting, like am I, do I have 20 different places where I'm interacting with this one class? That's probably an indication that there's a, a something in the middle that's missing. That uh, these 20 places are really the same thing. And I like to, over the years, I've, I've started looking at almost everything in terms of the messages that go between the things rather than the endpoints. And so that, try to keep those small, and those are indications of, of abstractions you've probably missed. Awesome. Well, uh, maybe that's a good place to start uh, wrapping things up. Is there anything that you wanted to, to plug or talk about before we get going? Um, if you are... Uh, happen to be in a, a city, which a lot of people actually live in cities or towns, um, check, your, check your local radio station and see if they have a series where they ask their audience questions. Chicago does, San Francisco does, Seattle does, uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio does. Like, there's a lot of these places and uh, ask them questions. And if they don't, um, contact them and see if they, you know, tell them about our company. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, yeah, you know, read my book. That's always fun. Um, I'll You're put, working you know, on a new I'll book send. too, right? Yeah, I am slowly over the last year working on it, which is about, um, it's called Exploring the Lambda Calculus, and it's really more just about fun with lambdas, like okay. starting with just the lowly lambda and one input and one output and building up numbers and booleans and if statements and lists and then building up and then eventually getting to uh, a type system awesome. from that. And I'm 
getting back into it because I've spent the last five months really like intensely on the business and then I'm getting back into working on it and I've been giving some talks so I gave a talk at GoTo Chicago um, that talk is up on the web and then I'm giving another talk in uh, Barcelona at their full stack fest um, on it too so I'm going to be doing some more talks around that and then look for it in the I don't know September October maybe time frame um, I've got a lot of it written I just have to get back onto it awesome well, that's great, man. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I learned a lot. Yeah, and, uh, thanks. I think a lot of people are going to have a, t- a lot of interesting takeaways from this conversation. Awesome. Sure. Well, I appreciate it. it was, uh, it's always fun to talk to people about this. As, as you can tell, it's hard to for, get me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I wish we could go forever. So maybe maybe down the road sometime we can have another conversation again, maybe after the next book comes out or something. Absolutely. I'm awesome. Always. Well, That's thanks okay. again, Corey. It's been awesome having you on the show. Uh, for anyone interested in uh, checking out some of the stuff uh, Corey's been talking about, I'll put up a, links to the, some of the books and articles and stuff that he's mentioned in the show notes. It'll be at uh, fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 22. And if you can uh, rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful. If you've got any ideas for uh, guests or uh, topic ideas, or if you just want to, you know, give me some feedback, you can always reach out on Twitter or uh, shoot me an email. My email address is on the website. Uh, Thanks again for listening to the show. And thanks again to uh, Hired for sponsoring the show as always. And uh, I'll catch you guys next time. Thanks.